Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is October 12th, 2018, and we're still in the post-Kavanaugh hangover, so let's talk about that. We're joined by a special guest, Politico's Alana Shore, who covers the United States Senate. Thanks for joining me on a relatively quiet so far Friday morning in Washington, D.C., Relatively, yes. Yeah. Thank you. A little bit. I want to talk about Kanye West a little bit later because we have to talk about Kanye West. We live in this freaking reality TV show, and so, of course, we have to do that. Um, But before we do that, there's some – this story about the missing Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, is – first of all, it is – it's – disturbing, fascinating, but it also is going to have political consequences. So I I want to talk, first of all, about what's going on on Capitol Hill about this story. And of course, you know, especially obviously after the the Washington Post and other media outlets report that, you know, the Saudi crown prince has been directly linked to his disappearance and we're assuming that he's been murdered. Do you assume he's been murdered? I mean, is that, are we just, are we just sort of dancing around that? I guess. I think, I mean, frankly, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Tennessee Republican Bob Corker, says, based on the intelligence I've seen, he was murdered. So I think it's safe to say, unfortunately, yes. Okay, so th- this this is not just a media firestorm. Uh, you have, as you report, you know, senators in both parties are gearing up to force a vote on scrapping an arms sale to Saudi Arabia. So, so tell me about the, you know, the, the impetus behind that and where it's going to go. Yeah, so readers probably don't know this, but for a while now, there's been a bipartisan effort from Rand Paul and Chris Murphy, talk about your odd couple on the left and the right, to try to stop portions of this big Saudi arms deal that the president announced last year. This is a $110 billion deal, but it doesn't come to Congress all at once. It comes in little packages of specific weapons, right? So every time one of these deals comes formally to Congress, Paul and Murphy can get together and under the Senate rules, force a vote on whether to disapprove of it. Now, of course, it takes House passage as well to literally block this, but there's never been a successful vote disapproving of any arms deal in the like 40 plus years that the law governing this has been in effect. So it's a pretty big deal that they came as close as they did last year. They were four votes short of blocking a Saudi arms deal last year, which is a big deal in the Senate. Of course, you know, whether Khashoggi actually puts them over the top remains to be seen. But uh, talking to them yesterday, uh, you know, the day before we taped this, uh, th- they're feeling pretty optimistic because members of both parties are just livid. Now, you say members of both parties. Let's let's take Rand Paul and put him to the side because he's a member of the Rand Paul party. Uh, wh- oh, sure. wh- wh- where is the where's the Senate leadership on this? Given how crucial the relationship between the Trump administration and Saudi Arabia is, how close the ties are. I mean, that this is this is really an awkward political moment for the Trump folks because this this, of course, was is one of the cornerstones of their Mideast policy. You have you know Jared Kushner has very very close relationships with the with, with the Saudis. So mm-hmm. what, what are you hearing from not from the Rand Pauls but from the you know from the Mitch McConnells and the John Cornines? Yeah, yeah. Well, the John Cornyns and the, and the Cory Gardner specifically, because he's the member of GOP leadership who sits on the Foreign Relations Committee and, and knows the most about this. He told me, um, you know, frankly, yeah, I, I think we should at least talk about something on arms sales. Now, that's that's a long way from a yes vote on a Rand Paul Chris Murphy motion. But the fact that Gardner and Cornyn are not dismissing this idea out of hand illustrates to you how deep seated the frustration is. 
So even if this passes, this has to pass both both houses. It, it would be one of the very rare moments where you would have Republicans in Congress break dramatically from the Trump administration. So would the smart money be still in favor of the the arms deal or is or is there something else going on here? Is there momentum? I think a lot, a lot depends on how the administration handles this quote unquote investigation into who is responsible. You already have Bob Corker telling any reporter who will listen, as I mentioned, that intelligence points to the Saudis did it, you know, but, you know, they want the White House to go through a formal process, whether that formal process turns into an excuse to just sweep this under the rug may ultimately make the difference here, because keep in mind, you know, the Senate could very well have a deeply symbolic, intensely covered vote to block this deal after the election, and Paul Ryan will still be speaker, and Paul mm-hmm. Ryan can decide not to call this up, you know? So as, as with many things in Washington, it's it's the show versus the practical effect. My money is on nothing happens to this arms deal, but Congress c- can really put a thumb in the eye of the president. Okay, speaking of, of the United States Senate, yesterday the, the, the Senate voted to approve a whole bunch of Trump-appointed federal judges again, and this was part of a deal that they cut with the Democrats, uh, my understanding is that uh, Chuck Schumer cut the deal because he wanted to be able to uh, have his folks, you know, get out of Washington and go back home and campaign. Um, From what I can tell on social media, the Democratic base is really not happy with this deal, uh, which comes just a week after the Kavanaugh approval. Yeah, and, you know, oftentimes it can feel like both parties' bases love to fulminate without making a point, (laughs) but they cut a real point on this one, and here's why. You know, the, the Senate floor is is a zero-sum game. It's not open forever. So so Democrats uh, in the building were telling us, like, oh, no, this is actually fine because McConnell would have gotten all these judges confirmed anyway. He could have kept us in session right up until Election Eve and gotten these judges confirmed. And, and you know, the answer to that from the base is, well— that would be forcing some of his members to stay in town. We're not sure whether or not he really would have done that. And if he decided to punt some of these judges Schumer gave him to after the election, that's less time to confirm other judges that no one likes because they have a long to-do list after the election. So so this argument that McConnell would have gotten all of this anyway is both true and kind of irrelevant to the basis complaint. Yeah, but yeah, that that. Uh, but but it's also just the emotional temperature of the moment. Uh, you know, we're 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 not we're not past this. Give me some sense of the fallout from that whole con the whole confirmation fight. We're we're now a week removed from, and it certainly looked a week ago like like not not only had the Senate institutionally been damaged, but um, there were some real frayed personal relationships there. So what what is the What's your sense about the, the the lasting impact of it of that confirmation fights on the on the Senate? Uh, I would describe the atmosphere in the Senate this week like everybody has had a roommate, right? And when you and your roommate get into a huge fight and both of you kind of still feel like you're right, but you have to keep living together. So you're just kind of <laughs> staring each other down, pretending that you're not still mad. It's it, you know, it was it, it's still pretty bad up there. Uh, and on both sides, frankly, Republicans and Democrats alike have reason to feel like their colleagues across the aisle have broken norms, chipped away at whatever comedy like, remained in that body, you know? And, and I honestly don't know how they get past it other than time. So that's another big reason, I think, why Democrats took this deal. It's like, what do we have to gain by sitting in this pressure cooker of tension for too much longer? 
the the uh, the polls would suggest, and you, you tell me if I'm wrong because um, I'm looking at this from 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 a distance. That that all the polls that I'm looking at would suggest that Republicans have lots of reasons to be optimistic about holding the United States Senate. Um, do you, you first of all do you agree with that? And number two, is there is there a sense that there was a break toward Republican Senate candidates post Kavanaugh? Um, you know, if you talk to GOP strategists, they love this idea of a Kavanaugh bump for their candidates. I'm not particularly convinced it's Kavanaugh related. I think it's more, you know, voters coming home here. Like a lot of these red states have a lot of Republican leaning independents who might not have shown up in polls. And now, again, they're coming back to the party that they tend to gravitate towards. And that is bad news for Heidi Heitkamp, super bad news for Phil Bredesen, and possibly also bad news for Joe Donnelly. So, yeah, I mean, I think looking at the landscape now, uh, what could have been like a maybe one seed bump up or down for either party in the Senate is now looking like a couple seat pickup for Republicans. Yeah, that, that's this is one of the, the interesting parts about the election, how you could have such disparate results where Republicans pick up pick up ground in the, in the House, take control of the House and lose ground in the United States Senate. Um, which seems to be where where the where the smart money would be. Although I see a story uh, on Politico, but uh, my old friend Donna Shalala, former president of the University of uh, Wisconsin Chancellor, uh, who's lagging behind in a seat the Democrats hope to win easily. Um, I know you don't cover the, the House necessarily, but are, are there are there is is the conventional wisdom shifting on the House at all, or because we've been all focused on a lot of these Senate uh, Senate uh, polls. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a Senate reporter, so yeah. I'm loath to speak uh, too authoritatively on the House landscape. But, yeah, you know, but we're pundits. It's a podcast. We, we, <laughs> we can have opinions about anything. But, but you know, like... <laughs> One metric I found recently really interesting was statistically, I, I think this was Nate Silver, he put about a 40% chance that one party holds control of both. Now that is, right, like the slim window for Democrats mm-hmm. in the Senate pays off, the larger window for Democrats in the House pays off. So 40%, I mean, especially after our 2016 experience with Trump beating Clinton, that's a fairly big number. So I think everybody's assuming Republican Senate, Democratic House, and that could be a fatal assumption. I know. I, I, I hey, look. Any of us that lived through 2016 know that feeling. You know, know that you you watch the pundits and they they assume something. You go, well, excuse me. I mean, you know, maybe you assume it because <clears throat> you've been in this in the in this uh, in this echo chamber where we keep telling our, ourselves about all of this. So where do you come down on the M word? M word. <laughs> no mob. I, you know, I, <laughs> okay, there could be Mueller. No, there no, could no. be mothers. My, 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 my good friend Matt Lewis uh, has had these remarkable experiences on, on CNN. I don't know whether you've seen them. Columnist for the Daily Beast, uh, and uh, you know he's talking about the. I mean, and clearly, Republicans have decided that the that the the, the M word, the mob, mob action, is going to be centerpiece to uh, you know one of the narratives that that they are pushing. They have videos out. You know, uh, it, it, it is a talking point. And he was on one of the CNN shows and and he talked about, you know, mobs, you know, yelling at Ted Cruz and driving him out of a restaurant. And one of the anchors actually said, well, you can't use the M word here. And it really raised the question about, okay, so, you know, are are, are we really at this point in American history going going to have an argument about whether or not we're, you know, what the word mob means here? But, you know, clearly, you know, I I mean, I, I guess I would come down that. That if you have a large group of people who invade a restaurant where someone's trying to have dinner and they shout and they drive him out, that sounds like a mob to me. But but I don't want to get caught up in whether or not you want to use the word or not. Yeah, I mean, the debate about mob to me is a lot like the debate about civility. Uh, it, it smacks of like 
insincere intellectual dishonesty when the core point is actually a sound one, which is that, you know, the people who came out for the women's march and the gun march, I, I, I covered it as a, yeah. an objective reporter for Politico, both of those events, uh, you know, very few of them were the kind of people who would nastily chase Senator Cruz out of a restaurant, right? But the tactical errors of spotlighting moments like that allow Republicans, give them a wide berth to say, like, look, everybody who comes out to, comes out to these protests is part of the mob. And you know what? It's a pretty effective political argument. The fact it that it doesn't, it doesn't really cover the, the moms in tennis shoes right. who I saw at the gun march. But unfortunately, that doesn't matter. No, it, it doesn't. And and this is one of those moments you, you raise your hand and you go, you know, do you want to win elections or do you just want to, you know, scratch, you know, scratch your itch here? Because this this is a gift. I mean, I, I, I argued about a year ago, you know, Antifa was a huge gift to Donald Trump. If Donald Trump could could, you know, create a playbook, it would be to have Antifa behave badly, have people behave badly, and then to basically stick a pin in that and, you know, focus. And, and that's what you are running against. And that's why it was so unfortunate. I talked about it the other day on the on the on the podcast that you have leading Democrats who seem to have have fallen into this this trap of saying that we cannot afford civility. It it just it doesn't seem. I mean, I understand how you need to throw meat to the base, but it strikes me as exactly the wrong tone to be hitting right now going into a general election. Yeah, I mean, look. Democrats have not yet figured out how to project toughness to the left corner of their base that wants it and also to make sound political decisions. And when I look back at the Kavanaugh fight, like the Senate Judiciary Committee was was chastised by rape crisis groups for putting out personal sexual information about one of Kavanaugh's accusers. Like you could call that pretty uncivil too, right? Yeah. There's been incivility oh, yeah. on both sides. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the difference I think is that Republicans have decided how they're going to respond and they're very good at staying unified and Democrats haven't. Well, yeah, that that is the you know, and unfortunately, and I don't mean to keep citing other people, but you know, David French writing yeah. in National Review, and I think he's one of the most you know thoughtful commentators, has gotten into a, a debate about you know, you know, is there a moral equivalency between the you know mob action driving somebody out of a restaurant and the president of the United States leading chants of lock her up, lock her up, and saying, well, that's not nearly as bad as the mob. I guess I don't want to defend either one of them or get trapped into the which is worse. You know, when the president of the United States, who has been talking about due process for the last five minutes, I guess, you know, leads chance of, ma of, you know, lock her up and everything. That ought to be disturbing. And we keep moving the window. OK, what's worse? What's worse? Well, hey, maybe they're both worse. Um, so I see here, even as we're talking, that there's a new Politico Harvard poll. Um, I don't know whether you've seen it as you work at Politico, that most Democratic voters are driven by desire to ice the GOP health agenda. This seems to be the one issue that Democrats um, have coalesced around, which is, of course, you know, to emphasize the danger to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, to uh, coverage of, of pre-existing conditions. How, how do you sense the healthcare issue playing out on the, on the, you know, in, in the field? The reason I'm asking that is I think that's a very powerful issue for the Democrats to go after pre-existing conditions. And you can hear that the Demo that Republicans are on defensive. On the other hand, Republicans are really on the offensive for Democrats who come out in favor of single payer health uh, plans uh, or, or Medicare for all. And they keep mentioning this thirty-one, thirty-two trillion dollar tax hike. So, how, how do you how do you sense the balance of terror here? Well, look, I mean, the fact is, is that 
if Democrats win both chambers of Congress, we're a long way from Pelosi and Schumer forcing votes on Medicare for all and single payer. We are. We, we just plain are. And I understand why Republicans are using that blunt instrument against them anyway. However, you know, Medicare for all and single payer pretty popular in some of these districts that will define the House. So if we're looking at those arguments side by side, I think the Democratic argument against what Republicans are doing on pre-existing is far more powerful. And in fact, it was head spinning the degree to which you saw Chuck Schumer pretend that like healthcare was the number one issue now and Kavanaugh didn't happen this week because he knows that that's where his party polls strongest. R reporters were up there saying, what do you think about judicial nominations, et cetera? And Schumer is like, let's talk about health care. It's like they're returning. It's like they've woken up from a trance, Democrats, and they're like, oh, we got to start talking about what polls best for us. So. Oh. All right. So Kanye West, mm -hmm. I, you know, a, a, a scene that is only conceivable in the Trump administration, in the in the in the in the in the Trump era. So what's your hot take on that? <laughs> so give you my 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 hot take, and which 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 I think is actually wrong, and I and I'm I'm, I'm thinking that my hot take, um, you know, reading through interesting, reading through your your Twitter feed made me think that maybe I'm not completely right, but is that you know, so Kanye West is he's crazy, right? I mean, it's yes. like did we not yes. know that? However, I also notice that people are saying he's not crazy. If you listen to Kanye West, basically, you're hearing um what what he's probably absorbing on right-wing YouTube channels 24-7. And yes. if you spend any time in that world, you understand where he is coming from. So I'm not actually sure that those are inconsistent. I mean, I did write a book, How the Right Lost Its Mind, but I mean, <laughs> you you really did see kind of a, a conjunction of, of real crazy yesterday in the Oval Office. Absolutely. And and I think, like you said, both can be true at the same time. That could have been totally off the wall. And it could also have spoken in a really appealing way to a portion of the president's base that any of us would describe as just loco. Um, and, and I think it was both. But here, here's my hot take, which is going to be the nerdiest, most disappointing okay. hot take of all time. I actually think prison reform could be the big bipartisan breakthrough here because they talked about that partly. That is what, you know, Mrs. Kim Kardashian West has been lobbying the president on for ages. And you also saw yesterday the president say, you know, Jeff Sessions, who hates prison reform, um, isn't the decision maker on this. I am. And we all know how he feels about his own attorney general. So if I had a substantive takeaway from that, whatever that was with Kanye was, oh, hey, prison reform has a shot. You know that's not as nerdy as you think it is. Um, it, you know, it's, it's no, no, no. It's it's it, it, it's it's funny. I was at a breakfast um, this 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 summer that was sponsored by Coke Industries on this issue of criminal justice reform, and I remember thinking about halfway through that if you didn't know that the evil Coke brothers were you know in, involved in this, this would seem like a pretty you know socially liberal um, you know gathering talking about all this. So there's a lot of intellectual energy in favor of this from unusual sources. So, I mean, there, there is that, that bipartisan possibility for this, and there always has been. And as you point out, J Jeff Sessions, you know, has been the one opponent. My skepticism, of course, well, is Tom that- Well, Tom Cotton, too. Let's not forget. Yeah, Jeff Sessions Okay, and well, and, and, he, and, he, and he, now he's going to stick around, and he's going to be influential. And also, I think he's probably more in touch with the Republican Trump base on this issue. I mean, you know, this is this is a president who's run on being, you know, the, the toughest son of a bitch on law and order. Um, and so there's always been the, 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 the tension between this. And so I-, I I've, the the 
the, the, the Koch folks were quite optimistic that they, you know, could have an ally in the White House. I mean, maybe this was, I think this was pre-Kanye. Um, I'm always a little bit skeptical because, you know, uh, criminal justice reform is not red meat. But post-election, you may be absolutely right here. Um, but back to Kanye, I, I noticed that uh, Ben Collins, who's uh, who's an NBC reporter, is that right, Ben is? Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you retweeted him, you know, that Kanye's rambling is pretty much a, a one-to-one recitation of YouTube conservatism and ready blo- vloggers, vloggers, which are extremely paid for in the next frontier of the Breitbart slash InfoWars right. He's absolutely right. And he says absolutely none of this Kanye speech is crazy nuts or even new if you've been targeted with an ad by PragerU on YouTube. Um I, I still think that you can say it's crazy nuts and, and you know, but but he's he's right. It is it is absolutely not new. No, you're right. And I, I'm 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 I guess I, I was uh, I'm, I'm interested to know when the president goes back to this whole use of his pardon authority. I mean, it's the one area where he had, there are really no checks and balances whatsoever. Uh, it is it is as close to an absolute power that is as the president has, and it also makes for great reality TV. And, uh, you know, after after the president's last little burst of, of pardons, I was kind of expecting that he was going to realize, hey, you know what, this this really works. You know, this is the you know, the, the Trump, you know, you're pardoned, you're pardoned, you're pardoned, you got right. out of jail free. <laughs> That's a, that is a great first of all, it's a great show and it's possibly good politics, but he hasn't done it. But your point is that uh, maybe. Maybe this is an indication that he might go back. So, all right. So, what else are we? So, it was somebody made the point this morning that you know now that we're and we're we're doing this, of course, talking about Kanye West. We have this massive hurricane, you know, bearing down on Florida. By the way, I you know I this this, this almost seems like low, too low hanging fruit. So I'm embarrassed to even bring it up because it's not Don't hard to be. imagine. What what conservatives would say if Barack Obama, in the middle of a major storm, met with a rapper. In, you know, in the in the Oval Office for that period of time, what Fox News would look like? I mean, the hair, the heads exploding all over the place. But while we talk about this, all of the other stories that we're not paying any attention to, and then this, I think, is something that you could raise virtually any time since, uh, well, since the beginning of of, of the of the Trump presidency. Um, that's what makes this Jamal Khashoggi story, I think, somewhat interesting. I don't know that that the average grassroots voter is paying attention, but at least it's not being lost in the Trumpian show. And that that that's that's what makes it kind of a wild card, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think, you know, just like Christine Blasey Ford spoke to a certain segment of the female electorate and whether, you know, you believe her or don't, it was clearly visceral and emotional for women. I think this story about a journalist who criticized a government and literally disappeared after entering its consulate, like that breaks through the political haze because everybody goes, oh my God, this is something out of a movie. How are we going to let this happen? So I think it's going to have legs. Well, and also because the president and his family are so closely tied to the man who might have ordered the hit. I mean, yes. this this is one of the this is one of the great rules of political scandals. You know, if if, if you if you need a flow chart, you know, if you, if you need a Carrie Matheson wall to explain <laughs> it, it's it's not going to cut as much as if you can explain it. Hey, uh, you know, the, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia ordered a journalist murdered and he may have done it because he thought that, uh, you know, Trump would look the other way. OK, well, okay, I, if, you, if you can put that in one paragraph, 
Um, it's potentially more dangerous. We will see. Alana Shore, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. And I, I like the coffee, the coffee shop vibe in the back. This, oh, this makes thanks. it seem real. No, I think this is <laughs> this this is something we you know uh, you know that this would be a podcast that I think would be enhanced if we could if we could do it in a bar on a regular basis. But since it's the morning coffee shop is the next best thing so well, i really next time it. join me here at the corner bakery it's been a pleasure <laughs> and thank you for listening to the daily standard podcast i'm charlie sykes we'll be back on monday morning we'll do this all over again <laughs>